Wakanda forever. We're not gonna get into that right now because we get distracted. <laughs> Actually, I haven't, I haven't, I, I, I'm taking my boys to see it today. So I haven't seen it yet. So I can't really say much about it. No spoilers, please. If you, if you, if you, if you spoil, the Lord will rebuke you today. I rebuke you. <laughs> get behind me, Satan. If you say anything about that movie, except that it was good, get behind me, Satan. You do not have the things of God in mind, but the things of man. I think that's applicable across the boardwalk for some folks. I'd open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We will finish going through this passage, this chapter 1 today. I want to say a couple things as we turn to this passage. There are many challenging things about preaching through a book. Whenever you go through a book, this is why a lot of people teach what we call topical sermons, where you just kind of bounce around the different verses, and you preach this verse, and, and you jump to this verse, and you do that. And sometimes you can be faithful to do that, but oftentimes you can take verses out of context and make them mean things that they don't mean when they were written. They mean something to you, but that might not be what it meant when it was initially written. And so what we tried to do was explain what it meant to those who were originally the, per the people who it was written to and how it should apply for us. And oftentimes there are clear parallels. But there are challenges also when you go through a book straight across. Two of the challenges are sometimes you don't hit issues that you're dealing with in the church because I have to preach what the passage is saying, not what we may be going through. So at times we have to evaluate, should we pause for a moment and talk about something that we might be dealing with as a church or do we continue through the book? So that's one of the challenges of trying to figure that out. The other challenge is there are times when you come up with a passage that can be difficult to explain because of the nature of the passage. And this morning would classify as one of those passages that it's difficult to talk through. And there are three particular reasons for me. There may be many others for other people, but since I'm preaching today, this is, these are my three. The three reasons why this is a difficult passage to look at this morning and talk through are one, the first is the way God's role can be perceived and what happened in this, these eight verses. The way God can be perceived and what happens in these eight verses. It can appear as if God is the cause of what we're going to read this morning. So we're going to zoom in and carefully look at it and see what does that mean? And on one level, it's easy to say God is the cause because many of us, despite our sort of theological framework, we all believe that God is in some measure of control. So it's easy to say that God is the cause of all things because he's in control of all things. And that, that, that there's a tension there for many of us that, well, if God is in control and knows this, how are we still responsible? And it's not a tension Spoiler alert, it's not a tension that the Bible resolves very easily. When we get to Romans 9, God, speaking through Paul, says it pretty clearly. So we can answer and we can come up with questions to our heart's content, but God didn't see fit to explain some very difficult things like, how are we responsible for our actions, but yet God is also ordained and in control of the actions that we do? Also, how is Jesus both God and man at the same time how does that work? 
So there's a lot of things that we have to hold in tension with this passage is one of those because God's role can be perceived as he's at fault. The second reason why this passage this morning is difficult is because of the description of what happened here. This is not a pleasant, a pleasant eight verses. This is not pleasant. And lastly, the reason why this can be a difficult passage, this is more of a cultural reason, is because this passage is talking about, not completely, but one of the main passages that talks about homosexuality. And in the culture that we live in, we live in a culture where the church, not the culture, not the non-Christians, but there is an, a theological framework within the church that would say that the Bible does not condemn monogamous gay relationships, so essentially gay marriage, the Bible does not condemn that. And passages like this are seen by many people who are Christians who profess to be, gay people who profess to be Christians. This passage is seen as what's called the clobber passages. All the passages that have a negative perspective on homosexuality are often called the clobber passages. And this would be one of the main ones, because this is, in fact, the only passage that doesn't just talk about men having sex with men, but women having sex with women in a negative light. And because our cultural framework and some in the church are saying that the Bible does not condemn monogamous gay relationships, to talk about this in a negative light for some people is to be unloving. So that makes this passage difficult to say. On that note, I do want to say this. Since 2012, I probably haven't studied any issue more than pro-gay theology. And if you've been in this church for any number of years, you've heard me talk about these things. Particularly in 2015, we hit that issue head on. Because of the nature of that, and there are people here today that were not here in 2015. Today, I'm going to preach this passage in the context of Romans 1. But I'm going to come back to this passage next week. And we're going to look at it from the context of pro-gay theology and how they see this passage and what the problems may be with their interpretation of this passage. And we're going to talk about that as a, as, so we're not going to just stay here next week, but we're going to begin here next week uh, and look at it from a different angle. But today we're going to preach this in context and try to say simply what the passage is telling us. Having said that, beginning in verse 24 of Romans chapter 1, I am reading from the CSB translation, and it says this, and I quote, Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what was created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and, deceived, and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do not do what is right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, 
inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Verse 32. Although they know God, they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Let's pray. Father, we, we, we refuse to be like people who celebrate parts of your Bible that they like and reject the parts they disagree with. We accept all of Scripture because you inspired Paul to write these words as you did the greeting that we looked at a few weeks ago. You inspired Paul to write these words as you did David the Psalms. You inspired Paul to write these words as you did the wonderful Philippian letter, letter to the Philippians, the church in Philippi. You inspired Paul to write these words as you did Luke the gospel and John the gospel and all of the different scriptures that, that we, we hold to. There are many things about the Bible that we don't know, that in our confidence we may think we know, but as you inspired Paul to write in 1 Corinthians, we see dimly. So we offer as best as we can what we believe to be true, along with the tradition of church history and what we've, how we've processed the Bible. We allow difficult passages in your word to interpret themselves. We look at the number of different things as we try to communicate what we believe to be true, and this morning is no different. So I pray, Lord, that you would guide my, my mind, my lips, my illustrations, even my jokes for the purpose of your glory and for our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Let me say this up front, and I will uh, get into this a little bit more next week. This passage is not talking about people who profess to believe in Jesus that struggle with same-sex attraction. This is not talking about those people, okay? There are people in our midst who struggle with that, and there are brothers and our sisters. That's not what this passage is talking about. It's not talking about people who are tempted to sin in a certain way, and somehow everything about them is this. That's not what it's talking about, because there are people who may have that particular struggle, but that push back against their temptation because they want to honor the Lord. So we're not talking about the temptation to this particular sin issue. We're talking about people who celebrate and live the lifestyle. This is what the Bible is talking about. That's different. So we need to keep that in mind because for some of us, maybe many of us, maybe more of us than not, this issue can seem like the unpardonable sin to us. But I've known of people who've walked out of this lifestyle. And we know of some because they're in our church and we love them. So remember, in context, this is not talking about those who struggle with same-sex attraction, but that would agree with the Bible's perspective on it. We're talking about those who reject God. And the consequence for rejecting God is a deeper sinful desire. Having said that, we're going to break this passage up into three different consequences so it says God delivered on three different occasions. The first is desire, God delivered them over to the desires of their heart. That'll be our first one. The second one will be God delivered them over to disgraceful passions in verses 26 and 27. And the last one will be God delivered them over to a corrupt mind in verses 28 through 32. Beginning with verses 24 and 25, 
God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts. Let me reread this. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their heart to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. This text, particularly verse 24, is connected to the passage that we went through last week, 18 through 23, and it's connected by this one word, therefore. So whenever you see therefore, it's always pointing back to what it was saying prior to this, sometimes pointing back to the, the, book, the therefore before it. So that's, it's referring back to what was said in light of this. So let's give a one-minute summary of what we talked about last week. In verses 18 through 23, God inspiring Paul gives this picture of humanity that even though God was made himself known in creation by creating the sun, the moon, the stars, and order, and pr provision for animals, and different seasons, and all these things that can be seen as something beautiful, God has said that people chose to reject him instead of worship him. And so because of that, their minds and their desires and their behavior have gone the opposite way. So this is the point in 18 to 23. People could have worshiped God, but instead they reject God. And as a result of it, their minds become confused, their hearts become darkened. And it says they worshiped the created things instead of the creator. So that's last week's one-minute sort of sermon. So this therefore is pointing to that. So it's almost like saying, as a result of rejecting God and worshiping the creation rather than the one who created it, God delivers them over to the desires of their heart. And that's the first consequence of a refusal to acknowledge God in this passage, at least here. Now, as I said, this, the challenging part of this is that on the first read, it seems like God is responsible for the sexual impurity. He doesn't define sexual impurity. What it is, he just uses it sort of as a general term that God gives them over to this. And on cursory read, it looks like God is responsible for this. Looks like God is doing this. And that's the wrong picture. This is not the picture that the scripture is saying. Many of us have seen movies, right, where you got someone taken into custody and they're fighting against the will, like, no, no, and someone's dragging them to some room where they feel like they're going to die or something's going to happen. We've all seen those kind of movies, right? We've all seen them. If you've seen Walking Dead or anything, someone's always like, no, 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 and being taken against their will. That is not what this passage is describing. This passage is not describing people who really want to believe in you, God. I love you. I want to believe in you. And he's just ushering them into this darkness. That's not the picture that this scripture is describing. These aren't people who love God and he's forcing them into this against their will. That's not the picture here. This is, from God's perspective, people who, because they continue to reject God, they reject the structures that he's put in place. They reject the normalities that he's put in place. They reject a number of things to the point where their desires no longer desire God himself, but aspects of things that have their minds confused. Now, a couple things we have to take into account as we look at these verses. The way this is set up is like this. The passage does this, and I think God is very intentional to do this. 
there is sort of an explanation. There's an explain and then an unveil. So what God does is he explains what's happening. He explains, he reminds us. So when he says stuff like this, in verse 23, he'll say like they worship the creator instead of the created God and, and, and worship immortal man, birds, and everything. So God explains that, and then he unveils what happens. Then he explains again in verse 25. He reminds us, they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve what has been created. And then he explains, he unveils what happens in verse 20, 26. In verse 28, the same thing. He explains that they worship, they, they denied God, and then he unveils what happened. That's sort of how this is happening. It's rare that you see God do this, where he reminds you, this is why this is happening. That's very intentional by God. He's explaining, look, this is why this is happening, and then he unveils what happens. This is why this is happening, then he unveils what happens. This is why he does that three times in these eight verses. God wants to make sure that we understand this is why this is happening. The temptation to blame God is always is always on deck. Here's why this is happening. Here's what happens as a result of it. Here's why this is happening. Here's what happens as a result of it. The other thing that this passage shows us is that people are not as good as we think they are. See, we tend to think that thinking of people in the most positive light is the most accurate, it's the most accurate reality for people. I remember as a kid, I don't know if you heard this. As a kid, I remember, I, I didn't know if it was a joke or not, but I remember hearing this thing like, George Washington never told a lie. I, I remember hearing this all the time, he never told a lie. I, I obviously didn't know the man, but I don't know if he did, but I don't know if I believe that. Maybe he didn't, but maybe the person who said he didn't is lying. I don't know. But this sense of like, man, people are pretty much good people, and that's the way we, and as believers, we tend to try to love people, but you don't love people by pretending like they're not who they are. You love people by showing them who they are, like what Ann was talking about. God doesn't bring up sin and expose it to make you feel bad. He brings it up so you can know two things. One, I died to forgive you for this, and two, so go after it. So God isn't, so, so we tend to think people are good people, and so it's like, man, and passages like this show us that people are not as good as we tend to believe they are. And if we're really honest, even about our own selves, even our own consciences can condemn us. From thoughts to actions, we think things, say things in our minds to people. We do a number of things that no one would know but God and us. But this passage also shows us that God is holier than we think he is. You know, there is this, and I think because we live in a culture where grace, particularly our grace is very elevated, almost to the point where God is almost like Santa Claus. And I, and I feel like sometimes people think God is sort of like that, like he knows who's been naughty or nice, and he's just waiting to give people gifts, so just believe in him. And it's like, that's not who God is. That's not who God is. God is, when it says God is holy, we always say God is loving. Oh, that's part of it. That's an attribute. That's true. But love does not dismiss holiness. It doesn't dismiss wrath. It doesn't dismiss 
punishment and judgment towards sin. The fact that God is holy in his character, what that means is because he's so morally pure and so morally righteous and he's so holy and he's the creator and the judge of everything, that God cannot allow immorality to go untouched. God cannot do that because in his nature, he can't just allow it to not be punished. That's hard for us to understand because for us, many times that would be vengeance for us. But the scriptures say, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. This passage shows God is holier than we tend to give him credit. He takes sin more seriously than we give him credit. You see, grace doesn't minimize the standard for holiness. It just forgives us for not keeping it. And the standard for holiness and the consequence of it was God sending his own son to be brutally murdered. Like he takes that pretty seriously. So when there is this rampant rejection of him, it's going to be punished. And that's what Christianity says. Your sin is going to be punished. The question is, who receives the punishment? You or Jesus? That's just the reality. And there's no cookie-cutter, kid-gloves way to say it. Holiness is going to judge sin, and God, as merciful as we sing and as grateful as we think he is, he is not sitting up there, an old dude on a rocking chair, just hoping people believe in him, and sad because they don't. He is ready to punish disobedience. The other thing this passage is trying to show us is that God's wrath looks a lot different than we thought it would. When I think of wrath, and this is just me, this might not be you, so not, this is how I think of it. When I think of wrath, I think of fits of rage and just like, ah! I think of like the Hulk, smash! That's what I, I think, like, let's get it! Like, we like jumping up and fighting 2,000-foot monsters and trying to kill them. Like, wrath is just something I feel like is like the hawk. It just goes that way. Just this, this explosion of it. And, and I think a lot of people think that way. And so when there's not this, this, this extreme display of God's anger, people think, oh, he's approving. But in this passage, his wrath is not seen in explosion. It's seen in a degradation towards morality. This is God's wrath. Remember last message. It says God's wrath is revealed from heaven. Verse 18. How is it revealed? Well, this is what it's telling us. God's wrath in this passage is not this explosion like, like the flood in Genesis 6 where he destroys the earth. His wrath is revealed in, okay, you are rejecting me? I'm going to allow the desires in your heart that you have, you to do them. You to do them. Jesus said in Matthew 15, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Meaning what makes a person unclean is not what goes in their mouth, but it's what's already in their hearts. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what God is saying is that I see what's in your heart. I see this evil that's in your heart. You rejected me, and now you worship the things that I created instead of worshiping the creator. 
and your heart is determined to, to, to sin and to, and to re-undo everything that I've done to make what I've made normal, un, unnatural, all these different things that come from the wickedness of the heart, from our desires. And God says, look, I am going to allow them to pursue them then. He's no longer holding them back from some of the evil they are capable of. When it says God delivered them over, it's not, no, no. It's, all right, it's I'm going to stop stopping you from going in the direction you're going. You ever play tug of war? And you, you, you playing that thing and then you, you and your team realize, hey, let's let the rope go. <laughs> right? And, and you wait, you wait till they... So they pulling hard, you all right, pull hard, pull hard. And just as when they feel like, yeah, we got them, whew, and what happens? They fall, boom, boom, boom. Right? And then you laugh, it looks funny. And you hope the video goes viral. Right? That's kind of what's happening. Mankind is running towards hell and God's holding people back. But then when you continue to reject them, he just lets that rope go. All right. That's a sign of judgment and wrath towards God not a sign of freedom. The sexual revolution is not a sign of I define myself as my desires. It's a sign of God's judgment towards unbelief and misbehavior. This is not what it seems to be. Now here's why this should humble us. Here's why this should humble us. All of us, whether you believe in Jesus or not, the reason why this passage should humble us is because what God is saying is, I am restraining all people from being as evil as they could be. All people. Every once in a while, you see someone do like what this kid did in Florida, the shooting. And many of us think we would never do that. We could be tempted to be indignant and self-righteous towards people who commit different sins. But according to the passage, the only reason why you don't do that and I don't do that is because God is restraining us from being as evil as we could be. So even those who do not believe in them, there's still a restraint. Why aren't these things happening every day, every week? God is restraining people from being as evil as they could be, even when they don't believe in them, so that the world has a degree of order. So there's mercy even in how depraved people would be. And we know that we're always, as human beings, looking for a reason to rebel. Fly, eagles, fly. You in a rescue house, calm down. But, what, but the Eagles won the Super Bowl. I cheered for them because their team is in my division, and they have a lot of believers on their team. That's the main reason why I cheered for them. They got players, baptizing players, quarterbacks want to be pastors. I'm like, wow, this is no joke. I used to don't hear this. They, they won the Super Bowl. That night, this is after victory. That night, people rushed to the streets, flip over cars. Going to Saks Fifth Avenue, that I can understand. Going to Saks Fifth Avenue, <laughs> I ain't say I was there, I ain't did, I'm saying I understand. The, 
Let's be honest now. Temptation, temptation. That, they go into department stores, loot, stand on top of hotels and destroy property. This is all documented. You can see this. You won the Super Bowl. What are you flipping over cars for? What if that person doesn't have Geico? I mean, if it's your own car, yeah, but it wasn't. These people flipped over a car and kept moving. And we, and we look at it, we just think that's crazy, right? But you know what that means? Is people are always looking for a reason to demonstrate depravity. And even something that's positive, like your team wins, will cause you to commit sinful acts. So if a team winning the Super Bowl will cause you to break into it, then imagine what just a total rejection of God will lead you to do. This is humanity. This is humanity. I think God in his wisdom allows things like a championship win in a city, which should do, which shouldn't tear the city up, show that even in something that's celebratory, human beings will find a way to make it sinful and to be selfish. That's who we are. So God is giving them over to the wickedness that's already there. As his judgment towards people, humanity, I'm not going to always restrain you. Now, if you are a believer, here's what's encouraging. God is not just restraining us from being as evil as we could be. He's transforming us so that our desires don't want to be as evil as we could be. So it's not like, you know, let me at him. Let me at him, and he's holding us back like, no, back up, back up. No, it's God is also, through his spirit, transforming the desires. So if I'm at the game or in the crowd, I'm not running into the store to steal. Because my desires are changing. So as a believer, you can look at something like that, even though you celebrate it, even if that's your team, you can look at that and be like, man, what are they doing? Because our desire, so he's not just restraining us, he's turning us around. Turning us around. And unless he does that, we will keep running in the same direction. This passage should sober all of us. You are not as good as you think you are because you're just a good moral person. I would never do that. I remember this dude one time told this story. He was a well-to-do guy, and he watched one day a homeless man reach into the trash can and pull out a half-eaten Big Mac from a guy who had thrown it away. The homeless man had been watching him, and he watched him do that. And he said, man, I'll never, I'd never do that. And four years later, he found himself in a situation where he foreclosed on his home, he lost his family, and he was on the street for the first time in his life. And he was sitting outside, the, wherever, the eater, wherever the place was to go get food, it was packed, and he couldn't wait in that line, he was starving. So he sits down on a bench, not knowing where he's gonna eat, and he watches someone drop a half-eaten Subway sandwich into the trash, and then he remembered. And he said, sure enough, he went in there and got it before the rats did. Don't think you wouldn't do stuff. Don't think it can't happen to you. 
because we're just good in and of ourselves. God in his mercy restrains us. And if you're a believer, he turns us so that even we don't desire to do those things. And it takes time, but that's the way that it is. God is not responsible for this scene. He is responding to this. Now, to make sure people aren't confused about why God would remove the restraints in verse 24, he explains and reminds us in verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. What is the lie? That creation is better than the creator. And if you think about it, that's really crazy, right? If you think about like, like the way God, I think the way God sees it is like, we're supposed to be like, man, look at all this stuff. This is insane. So whoever created this is greater than insane. Like whoever, this is crazy. Like whoever created this is greater than insane. That's the amazement people are supposed to have. But it's like, wow, this is crazy. Whoever created this, who cares about them? I like this thing right here. It's not like, no, whoever created this is amazing. It becomes like, well, I don't know whoever created this is, but this thing right here I like. There's this gradual transition. And what's sad is, this is what it says in verse 25. This is just a sad reality to me because I know I've been guilty of this. It says, if they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Here's why this is sad to me. Because humanity has gone from worshiping forever. Since God is praised, this passage says, who is praised forever. So instead it goes from worship forever to never should have been worshiped. That's the change. Humanity, instead of worshiping God who's worthy of worship forever, changes to worshiping things that it should, never should have been worshiped. And that's a sadness. That's a real sadness. And I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty as charged. Worshiping things that should have never been worshiped. Instead of worshiping the one who should be worshiped forever. That's the exchange. 25, this brief doxology resets the scales and reminds us of how seriously God takes idolatry, which is a worship of anything but him. 25 explains, and then 26 unveils the wrath. 25 reminds us they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship to serve what was created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. So 26 brings us into the second thing that God delivered them over to. And it's not three different things. It's just an expression of fullness but we're going to separate them as different things that God delivered them over to. Verse 26. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left unnatural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty for their error. Verse 26 explains in more detail, more specificity, what this sexual impurity is in verse 24. So it gets a little deeper, explains a little bit more. 
25 reminds us of the reason why God is removing restraint. 26 brings us to the next layer of the wrath of God being revealed from heaven. And where 24 talks about sexual impurity, 26 begins to see where does that come from? And you look at this, delivered over to disgraceful passions. It begins as a desire that's called a disgraceful passion, at least in this translation. Yours may say dishonorable. The women exchange natural relations for unnatural ones is very intentional language, and it's meant to bring us back to creation. And men, in the same way, left natural relations, which is to have sex with women, and were inflamed in their lust with one another, for one another. The key to interpreting this passage is, what is the definition of natural? What is the definition of natural? What is a natural relation? for a woman, and what is a natural relation for a man? How do you define natural? We're going to look at this next week, but one of the pro-gay arguments for this passage is this, that the Bible does not, the biblical authors did not understand homosexual orientation as something that someone could naturally have. So when it talks about natural in this passage, it's describing someone who's heterosexual that now is acting out of their natural orientation. That's sort of, we'll get into that more next week. But this is just a, so it's, it's, that's, that's the logic here is that this person is describing someone who is not naturally inclined towards same-sex attraction. And so this is describing not someone who has that natural inclination, who's never had a desire for a woman. It's describing men who were, had a desire for women that have now left that desire, that natural desire, and they're now pursuing something unnatural. So this isn't talking about all of homosexuality, but just men and women who are naturally born towards desire for the opposite sex. We'll get into this more next week, but I wanna, the reason why I'm explaining this to you now is because in order to understand what Paul is talking about here, and why that argument is actually not true, we have to understand what the definition of natural is in this passage. I'm going to explain to you a little bit about how, what words Paul used in the original language. But to do that, I want to make this clear, and everyone knows this, all words have context, right? Even words that sound the same have a different context depending on how you're using them, right? So let's, let's just do this as a little test. If I say, it's over there, how do you, which, which there is that? It's over there. College students, someone. You can spell it. This is, a, this is interactive part. This is the reading rainbow part of the sermon. The reading, my, my fault, I forgot to put the theme music on. If I say, it's over there, what, what spelling is that? Right. And you know that, why? Because of the context, right? If I say, whose jacket is that? Oh, that's theirs. Well, how do you spell that? If they say, hey, where'd they go? They're, they're out there. Right. You know what it means, right, by the context and how I'm using it. So even though the word sounds the same, you know what it's talking about. You know what it's pointing to, right? Well, Greek is the same way. So here's the challenge with the pro-gay interpretation. Paul when Paul says men and women, 
he uses the Greek from Genesis, which is the Septuagint. He uses the creation way to describe men and women, not the normal way to describe men and women. So, and, and Paul doesn't do that very often. He uses the word arsenos for men. He's, he's pointing back to the Greek that Genesis uses in the creation narrative. So when Paul says men and women, he could have used just the average everyday term, but he's talking about from creation, he's using the terminology that was used then to make a point that the way you define natural is the way God created it and intended it to be. That's the point that he's making by pointing back to those words for men and women. That's the context. He's using creation language here to connect people back to the reality. And that makes the logic here even more frightening. So if you can ignore something as naturally obvious as creation by a creator, then you will ignore something as naturally obvious as the way men and women are supposed to relate sexually. That's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying here. And I'll get into this more next week. But I'll say this. Not everybody is born this way. Let's just say even if someone is born with, a, with there are people who say, man, I've never had a desire for the opposite sex. Never. That may be very well true. I think the reason why the God says we've got to be born again is, is, is for a purpose, because we're all born flawed. We're all born flawed. Heterosexuality is not holiness. The goal isn't to be heterosexual. Not the goal at all. I think people have done a great disservice to people who struggle with this as if that's the goal. Like, what are you talking about? Marriage is not even in heaven. Sex is not even in heaven. People are fighting and dying for this stuff, and you're not even going to do it when we get to heaven. It's like, not. We'll get into that next week. Probably won't be helpful right now. When it says here, men committed shameless acts in verse 27, the second half of it, men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty for their, of their error. This is part of verse where I think people get confused a lot. And part of the confusion is this. We tend to read our own definitions of words into the passage, right? Or we'll look at, like, the dictionary, today's dictionary, and not realize that there's this is Greek words being translated into English, and they have compound definitions, multiple definitions, depending on the context. So when you read, men committed shameless acts with other men, there are people who read that and think, well, I'm not, this is, I'm not committing a shameless act, so it can't be talking about what I'm doing. It can't be talking about, like, my desires, because my desires aren't shameless. Their definition of shameless is, like, rape or, or pederasty with sex with young boys. or It's like, no, I'm in love with this person. That's not shameless at all. So you read into this passage what shameless means, and then it becomes easy to say, hey, this isn't my, that's not me. But remember, the Bible is not written from our perspective. It's written from God's perspective. So he defines what some of these definitions mean. 
And shameless from God's perspective is clearly, clearly, clearly people pursuing and engaging in sexual activity of the same gender. When it says they received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error, it doesn't say what the penalty is. But to me, the answer to that, or at least the way you engage in it, is what is the error? The penalty is connected to their error. And their error is rejecting the creator and worshiping the creation. And the penalty they receive is in verse 27, is appropriate for that era. Next week, we'll get into that more specifically of what the era may be. For now, what's important to know is that people have rejected God's humanity and God has allowed people, has removed some of the restraint from people to engage in sinfulness that was already in their hearts, already there. And that's just challenging. It's challenging. Because there are people that we may care about that live like this, and on the surface, they're good people. I've had friends over the years and still have some. Good people. Good people. Come over to my house for dinner. No issue. Good folk. From my perspective. But I didn't create the world, and I didn't die on the cross to save anybody in it. So my perspective is second to his. And that's challenging. Challenging. But it's biblical. And I don't have the luxury, neither do you, to change that because it doesn't feel right. There's a lot of things. Let's just be honest. Let's move away from this issue. If you are a genuine Christian in this room and you've walked with the Lord longer than a couple days, you've experienced some serious trials and you've questioned whether or not God is, knows what he's doing or at least if this is actually loving to you. All, if you've walked with the Lord longer than a few days, then you know that. We all have those, man, those why God moments. No one's exempt. No one's exempt. It's tough. It's tough. But when you're a believer, you put things in perspective. You say, okay, out of all the ways that Jesus, God, chose to save me, he sent his son to die brutally on a cross. And then he tells me to take up a cross, to take up a desire to suffer. I mean, look, this is what Jesus did. When Jesus said, take up your cross when he was still alive, the people who heard that weren't thinking the way we think now, like, oh, man, the beauty of the cross, the majesty of the cross. Oh, I love the cross. There wasn't no tattoos of a cross and all that stuff back then. No one was wearing cross as jewelry. When people heard Jesus say, take up your cross, they were like, huh? The thing, the, the, that, the thing up there that's, that, that, that is the most painful, excruciating way to die? You're saying, take, what do you mean take that up? Like, I'm not trying to do that. 
And what Jesus was saying was, yeah, take that up. But not literally that piece of wood. Take up willfully the desire to live for self and die to your own desires. You die to yourself. You die. And that will be painful. There will be times where it feels like, why, oh, why have you forsaken me? That is the Christian life. But when that's over, like it was for Jesus, and he rises from the grave, it's totally different. And he says, when you take up that cross, whether it's a same-sex attraction, whether it's anger, whether it's self-control, whether it's fear of man, whether it's worry and anxiety, you take that cross up and you fight because you believe in the Lord, there will come a day when that cross is a piece of wood that you will just pluck. There's a reward for that. But the reward comes after the suffering. Next week, we'll get into the error. Lastly, lastly, the last deliverer that God gives them over to. Verse 28. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do not do what is right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. This is the last, at least in the passage, God gives them over to a corrupt mind. So we see in this in these eight verses, we see this description of God giving them over to the desires of their heart in verse 24, to disgraceful passions in verse 26, and to a corrupt mind in verse 28. Here's the irony for this. That these are the same traits that were described as godlessness and unrighteousness in verse 18. So their godlessness, their lack of reverence for God, their unbelief led to a lack of behavior for God. So belief and behavior are hand in hand in the Christian life. We must believe and we must behave. So when that's not there, then it just gets worse and worse and worse. When you don't believe, you will not behave. And when you don't do as much as you could, it's not because what you believe is good, it's because God is restraining you so that you don't behave as you could. What begins as a rejection of creation, of, of God's order in creation, has become a significant disorder towards those who he created. In verses 29 through 31, this is a catastrophic list of humanity's desires without God's glory in mind. This is just, do you know that right now, as we're sitting here, all of these things are happening right now? This is how merciful God is. Right now, as we speak, right now, as we speak, Someone's being murdered right now. A woman is being raped right now. A child is being molested. A bank is being robbed. A spouse is being cheated on. Someone's being lied to. Someone is experiencing a fit of rage right now. All these things are happening all the time. All the time. All the time. 
and we're still here because some of us do some of the things in that list. Some of us are in this list. I can name a few for me. If you can't, then you should look up the seat. There's one right there. <laughs> I can name quite a few, right? I mean, let's be honest, right? We can name a few in here. And God is still merciful towards us. But what he's showing us here is this is, this is, this is a very extensive list because God wants us to see the specificity of human depravity. So he takes three verses and just lays out all this stuff like this is the evil that God sees all the time. This is the evil that God saves us from all the time. This is the restraint that we see. I never forgot this. This never made more sense to me than one day I was watching a soccer game. It was in Europe somewhere. And the team that was the home team was about to win. And they started chanting. Uh, and it was getting louder and louder. And so the police ran out because they didn't want to destroy they wanted to destroy the field. So the police ran out and surrounded like the, the lower rim of the soccer stadium. There were 42 police officers. There were 80,000 people in the stands. That number doesn't match up. So I watched this like, well, these police are going to learn today. I was like, I said, when these fans rush the field, it's a wrap. And you know what happened? That by God's grace, because the authority was there, they didn't do that. And then when they asked some fans, why didn't we rush the field? They said, oh, the police were there right there. And I was thinking, I forgot, the, I, I can't do the accent, but they might have been Irish or something. That's not my thing. But, but I only do black accents. But, um. But the, thing, the point was, they saw police and were like, we should chill. Instead of being like, man, we'll crush them. We could demolish them. It's like a point zero 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 two percent That's the, that's the that's a chance of victory. It's 80,000 soccer fans going crazy and 42 police officers. And you know what that showed me is God restrains people because they vastly outnumber the, the authority. And God kept those 80,000 people like, all right, there's a police. I don't want no trouble. That's amazing that God is doing this. So when in your confidence about what you do and don't do, have less confidence in you and more confidence in like, wow, Lord, thank you. Thank you for restraining me. And if you're a believer, thank you for changing me. And if you struggle with same-sex attraction and you're fighting it, thank you for fighting Thank you for not giving in to the cultural pressure, even within the church that says that this is okay. Because I'll make a case more clearly next week that it really isn't. It really isn't. But in the passage, lastly, there is a, de- a, a progression of depravity that begins with a rejection of God's goodness. That leads to a rejection of God's design, where the only thing left is an acceptance of man's wickedness and acceptance of his wickedness. So you get to verse 32, and it says, like, this is just ridiculous on one level. Although they knew God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, you might as well say they didn't care. It says not only they not only do them, but they even applaud others who practice them. 
And it makes sense because if God's glory means nothing to you, neither does God's discipline. It doesn't. If heaven means nothing to you, then neither will hell. It just doesn't. If you don't care about heaven, you don't care about hell. All right, whatever. If God's glory means nothing, then neither does his punishment. Until you find out it's real. Lastly, I want to say this. Verse 32 gives us some cultural discernment. Because it says people who reject God will want you to reject them too. So here's how you can test who your real friends are and who the real believers are in your life. How do they call you to live and act? How do they call you to live and act? If you're in a relationship and it's sexual and you're not married, that person doesn't love you. They don't love you. They may love you from what they think, but they're actually allowing you to commit acts of judgment. When you're a believer and you love someone, you want them to know the Lord. If you're in that situation, that's not love because they're leading you to sin against the Lord. It may be emotional, but it's not biblical. The highest form of love is not romantic. The highest form of love is sacrificial. It's salvific. If you're in that situation, I'm telling you right now, it's not love. It's not love, biblically speaking. Because that situation could have you stand before God and see him as a judge and not a father. If you have friends that are coercing you, people who minimize what you believe and even mock it, like, are you, what are you talking about, man? Come on, let's go do this. It's not that big of a deal. It's legal. <laughs> or people do worse things. I would check. I would be like, hey. Because it says here that people... Not only do them, but they applaud people. They want people to do it. What does the world say? Misery loves company. We know what the Bible says, so does hell. <laughs> hell loves company too. It loves company too. And it's going to have a lot of it. But by his grace, it ain't going to have us. It's not going to have us. Next week, we're going to come back to this passage, but I'm going to do it really differently. And we're going to do it with some other things as well uh, to get at the, just the issue in general. Questions? Nahalio's not here. I need somebody else to be Oprah today if we have questions. Okay, I see a woman this time. Thank you, Natalie. Normally it's the guy. Thank you. So you get applause for anything. Man, you just come to grab the mic. I come up here and people be like, oh, man, here we go. Any questions? Good, let's go to, oh, okay, go ahead. Uh, uh, back there first. Brian. Okay, that's whose arm that is. I can just see the arm. Oh, the kids asked the toughest questions, too. Here we go. So what if somebody tries, like, to push something on you, like, that you don't want to do? Like, try to push sexual immorality on you? Like, they're like a group of them, and you can't get out? Then push back. Push back. And I don't mean like fight them. I just mean, listen, even, even with a gun to our head, we have a choice. It may not be the choice we like to die or do it, but we have a choice. And if you believe in Jesus, which you do, and you have people trying to push that on you, you stand your ground and you say no. You say no. And it may make you unpopular. And that's not for, like we all want to be liked, right? That's what everyone wants to be like. It may make you uncool. But you stand your ground, not because you're trying to be popular, 
but because you're trying to be faithful. You stand your ground and you push back and say, no, I will not do this. No, I will not do that. I, even now, I try not to even laugh at stuff like that. Like I used to laugh at people who were like feminine, guys who were feminine and stuff. I mean, that's the sin Jesus died for those folks. Like I'm not, I try not to even laugh at that because it's not funny. It's like I'm not going to laugh at, I mean, there's stuff that people do that's funny. If you fall, I'm sorry. But, <laughs> but there's some other, I mean, if I fall, y'all going to laugh. I'm going to keep moving even though I hit the, y'all going to laugh. But there's things that like, man, even that, like I'm, I'm trying to stand my ground even in things that I think are humorous. So you push back, and I don't mean literally, but I mean faithfully. You say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to engage in that. Good question, little buddy. Over here, then there was a question. Someone had a hand up over here. Frankie asked a question, and he pinpointed about sexual immorality, which is um, from the beginning of the, the world till, till, until the end. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. When, when they say sexual immorality, immediately that um, I heard that brings out every kind of other sin. So uh, one thing is practicing or not practicing disobedience or not being disobedient. And at the same time, when um, the Bible says childlike and childish, there's a difference being because the people, the ones that will enter heaven, will, we have to be like child, childlike versus childish. Yeah, good. I would agree. Very good. Thank you. When when is it right to laugh or not laugh? Because you could can you differentiate people when they make jokes like you just say a while ago that sometimes it's not funny to laugh about some certain kinds of things. Just mentioned. Yeah. For so example, I mean that's a hard question to answer because humor is sort of relative. So like like it might. So I'll just let me make an oversimplification just to make the point. Like for me, I tend to think there's a certain group of people that like, like sarcasm. So a lot of that stuff is, they'll laugh at sarcasm, like a lot of that. And then there are people who laugh at like real blunt stuff, like real bold in your face. Like I like the, I can laugh at both of those, but all sarcasm is, is uh, it's self-righteous arrogance. It's just I'm better than you, and so I'm going to make statements to mock you. And uh, Sarcasm is very much that. It can be very much that, just sinful. So it's hard to say when you should laugh or when you shouldn't. I tend to try not to laugh at things that I think are clearly they're making fun of things that Christ died for. So when it, when it becomes that, I don't think it's funny. Even if it's just dumb, like foolish what someone did, I try not to laugh at that stuff. Or like if it's, or, so I, I think of if it's something Christ clearly died for, or if it's foolishness on someone's part. Sometimes you watch videos of people doing stuff like trying to feed an alligator and then getting killed, you know? It's like, and it, for me, it's just, that's just foolish to me because it wouldn't even, uh, the only gator I got is boots and belt. It's not going to be, so to me, it's like crazy that you would do that, but that's somebody's family. You know, someone is grieving over that. So I don't always do it perfectly because there are times like, I'd be like, Lord, forgive me. Um, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have laughed at that. <laughs> so that happens a lot. That's half of my asking for forgiveness from the Lord is that. So I'm, I'm so, but it's just, it's just, it's a, it's a process of learning and growing. All right, one more question because we have to do communion. Last one. You will have more next week, believe me. Oh, uh, this 32, is this only talking about people who are uh, busy doing like the homosexual things or is encompassing all the other sins that I described here? Because the reason why I ask, like we have churches that have supporting the rainbow and all those kind of things. Mm -hmm. So how do we go about that? 
So I think in context, I think the passage is describing not so much only people who give in to homosexuality do these things. It's just going from smaller to greater in its depravity. Because like homosexuality is only one aspect of unnatural sort of depravity from God, right? That's only one aspect of it. But then it just gets bigger to include all these other things. So it's not like the people who are gay do all of this stuff and no one else does. Nah, it's, it's a statement. If you go back to like verses 18 to 23, it said God's wrath is in the people. So it's describing humanity and the progression of humanity in its depravity because of rejection of God. So there's a, so homosexuality is only one, and I'll explain next week why that one, why is that one, why is that one a big deal in the past? It's like, why does he start kind of there? I'll explain that next week. And then you'll look at all just the progression of all of the other things that just lead man away from God. This is what basically what it's saying is this is what people are like, what's in their hearts when they don't have God's glory in mind. So that's so in terms of the church, I'd have to know more detail. But if you're talking about a church that approves of like like gay marriage and stuff like that, is that what you're asking about? Um, I think it's a dangerous church. I don't think it's a church, to be honest. Um, I think it's a very dangerous place. It's very dangerous. It's one thing to be sympathetic to people's struggles. I think it's another thing to be approving of them. And there's a difference. There's a difference. So we'll get into that.